Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. For those of you who are techie out there, turn on your Bibles to Isaiah 7. I want to begin by reading this passage of Scripture this morning, beginning in verse 1. is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as the king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. Skip down to verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. December 7th is a notable date in history for more than one reason. It's most famous, of course, because it was on this date, a date which will live in infamy, to quote President Franklin Roosevelt, that the United States was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan at Pearl Harbor. But it was also on this date in 1944 that Bing Crosby recorded a live version of the well-known song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, on the popular radio show, The Craft Music Hall. Although the studio version was recorded about a year prior, it was Crosby's live version around Christmas time that resonated with so many people 
during this period of world war. During a time when many friends and families were separated from one another due to military deployment, or in some cases, death, the song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, expressed a sentiment that numerous Americans felt during the holiday season. But it's not just a sentiment felt during times of war, but it's also one that is felt during times of peace. Christmas time, for at least many Americans, is associated with the presence of friends and family and loved ones. Sadly, though, for some people, the approaching holiday season reminds them again of the absence of meaningful personal relationships and loved ones. As the holiday season rolls in, along with it comes a reminder of their loneliness and isolation. For many people, the song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, is more aptly titled, I'll Be Alone for Christmas. And it's not just the loneliness felt during the holidays, but the loneliness experienced throughout life that plagues many of us. While some of us may not experience the pain of physical loneliness caused by the death of a loved one or the distance between friends, we can all sometimes feel emotionally lonely or spiritually detached. Perhaps it's the nagging illness that makes you feel like no one else in the world knows exactly what you are going through, and you feel isolated. Or maybe it's the persistent temptation or besetting sin that has caused you to think that you are alone in the battle with no one else who has similar struggles? What about that relationship with an unbelieving friend or family member that brings you sadness because you know that you will never be able to have the kind of closeness that you desire with them until they come to know Christ? In the meantime, every time you get together, you feel distant from them in this area. Our struggles with loneliness extend not just to our relationships with people, but it can sometimes affect our relationship with God as well. Various situations in life tempt us to think that God is far away and unconcerned with our lives. A tragedy that you may experience can tempt you to ask, where was God? Or some trial you are facing has led you to think that God has abandoned you. Our passage this morning takes aim at an enemy we can all be hounded by from time to time. It goes by several aliases. Loneliness, isolation, distance. In a word, it is the exact opposite 
of the name given in verse 14, Emmanuel, God with us. During a time when King Ahaz and the nation of Judah were threatened by foreign oppressors, they were tempted to think that God had abandoned them. But the prophet Isaiah reassures them of God's presence, of his nearness, of his care and concern for them. God is not removed. He is near. He is with them. And we also will learn from this passage how the presence of God permeates our lives in the midst of the various situations that we face. God is also with us, the saints of Whidbey Evangelical Free Church. In our time together this morning, I want us to unpack this passage in two movements. First, in verses 1 and 2, there is a problem that tempts us to think God is distant. Then second, in verses 3 through 17, there is a promise that helps us to know God is near. Let's begin at verse 1 and see a problem that tempts us to think God is distant. Look at verse 1 again. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When I preached a few weeks ago on Isaiah 6, we discovered that Uzziah was the king of Judah, but he had just died. Now today in Isaiah 7, we see that one of his sons, a man named Ahaz, is reigning in Judah. And although he was not one of Judah's good kings, according to 2 Kings chapter 16, he was a descendant of David. As verse 2 records, he was of the house of David. Being in the line of David meant that Ahaz was in the line of promise. You will remember that after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, there is this significant statement that God makes recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Mark that verse down. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God addresses both the devil and Eve when he says in this text, I will put enmity or tension and disharmony between you, the devil, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of Eve, will bruise or crush, shatter your head, and you, the devil, shall bruise his heel. Now, what this promised is that from the time of Eve onward, there would be two lines, the line of the devil and those aligned with him, and the line of Eve, those who believed God's promise that one day he would bring about salvation for his people through the Messiah. 
these two lines take form right from the get-go. As we see, two of Eve's offspring, Cain and Abel, contend with one another. Cain proved himself to be a child of the evil one and murdered his brother Abel, who was a child of the promise. And the Old Testament writers went to great lengths to record the preservation of the line of the woman. And that's why you see all of these genealogies throughout the Old Testament, all the way up to the New Testament in the book of Matthew. It's because they wanted to carefully trace the line of promise until the promised deliverer would come. So, when we read in Isaiah 7 verse 2 that Ahaz is of the house of David, this is significant. It means that, that he is one of the descendants of the woman. He's also in the line of promise, the line of the Messiah. And Matthew chapter 1 bears this out. Ahaz is actually in the list of Jesus' descendants. And now, the seed of the woman is again threatened by the offspring of the serpent, the devil. Isaiah 7 verse 1 tells us that two kings, the king of Syria, it's also called Aram in this text, and the king of Israel, also called Ephraim, these two nations come against the house of David. Just how the devil tempted Eve to do evil, just how Cain rose up against Abel, just how the pharaoh of Egypt, Egypt tried to eliminate the male offspring in Israel during the time of the Exodus. Once again, there is a threat issued against the line of promise. What would Ahaz do? Certainly, as the reigning king in Jerusalem, he would have known about God's commitment to his family line. He would have known that God was with him as a descendant of David. It's interesting that verse 1 tells us that the foreign armies could not yet mount an attack against Jerusalem. Perhaps even now, God was protecting them and giving them time to exercise faith in him. But look how Ahaz responds in verse 2. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Rather than exhibiting faith in God, Ahaz and his people waver in unbelief. Since living on Whidbey Island, it's amazing to me how much wind the trees of this island can withstand. Uh, sometimes I look outside my house and I swear that the trees are just bending sideways, about ready to fall over. This picture of being shaken by the wind has become so much more vivid to me living on this island. And it is an interesting depiction of Ahaz and his people. Like wind-tossed trees, they were shaken in disbelief. Faced with a trial, with a problem, 
they are frightened and lack faith in God. Can you relate to them? I mean, before you criticize King Ahaz and the people of Judah too harshly for their lack of faith, what are the situations or the problems in your life that tempt you to think that God is distant? Maybe it's that difficult relationship with your son or daughter that has you doubting God's presence in your life. Why does God not soften their heart to listen to what I'm telling them? Why does it seem like he's not working on their heart? It's like I'm beating my head against a brick wall. Maybe you can relate to Ahaz when that unexpected doctor's bill comes in the mail. You don't know how you're going to pay for it. You think, God, where are you at? I don't have the money to pay for this. Perhaps it's the tension in your marriage that tempts you to despair. You feel that God is removed from your troubles, not aware of what's going on. Perhaps you think that God is not with you when you take that exam at school. This may be because you didn't study, but <laughs> it's, a separate, it's a separate issue. You, you could feel abandoned by God, perhaps, when you think about that ongoing difficulty or struggle with a friend or a classmate, or that ongoing struggle with some sin or temptation. What is it in your life that tempts you to think that God is distant? It may sound trivial, probably because it is, but I'm often tempted to panic when it comes to car problems. I have absolutely no mechanical ability, and so I'm at the mercy of mechanics. And a week ago or so, I started having some car problems that I'm still dealing with, and um, I confess to you that my initial reaction was not unwavering faith in God. <laughs> I, I felt my heart shaking like a tree of the forest before the wind. I was tempted to think, Lord, come on, again, another car problem? Seems like I always have car problems. During this whole ordeal, I was studying this text, and I began to feel convicted as I saw a whole lot of myself in King Ahaz and the people of Judah. And this was over a car problem, something so small. And I know that many of you here are struggling with things that are much, much bigger. Do you feel like Ahaz in the midst of life's difficulties, wondering where God is at, whether he is with you? Well, there is hope in this passage for all of us. Let's transition from verses 1 and 2, a problem that tempts us to think God is distant, and go to verses 3 through 17. And we're not going to look at every single verse in depth, but we're going to look at our second point, a promise 
that helps us to know God is near. Look at verse 3 again. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, go down to verse 7. Thus says the Lord, their plans shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. Verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In response to Ahaz's weak faith, the Lord sends his messenger, Isaiah, to rebuke and exhort him. Isaiah tells him not to be afraid, but to trust God. Although Syria and Israel had determined to overtake Judah, God's determination was even greater. To their schemes, God says in verse 7, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. This was a, a definitive and decisive answer from God. Their evil plans would not succeed. And, possibly, to encourage Ahaz to trust in God's word, the prophet Isaiah uses words and terms in verses 8 and 9 that are reminiscent of Genesis 3.15. Do you notice that? The promise that the offspring of Eve would one day crush or shatter the head of the devil. You notice how many times the word head, the Hebrew word is rosh, is used in verses 8 and 9? Four times. Smack dab in the middle of those verses, Isaiah also uses the word shatter. This is not the same term that is used in Genesis 3, but conceptually you can see that the ideas are, are similar. And I propose that Isaiah is subtly reminding Ahaz and the people of Judah of God's promise in Genesis 3.15. That God would deliver the offspring of the woman, the very line of David. The call here then was for Ahaz to believe Believe that God's word would stand above the word of his enemies. God would bring about deliverance for his people. Ahaz needed to have faith in this message. Look, at the, look again at the end of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And in his grace, God helps Ahaz by offering him not only the verbal assurance of his word, but he also gives him physical confirmation that it's true. Look down at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, 
Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. God gives Ahaz and his people a tangible sign that confirmed his promise that they would be delivered from the threat of these foreign armies. The sign is given in verse 14. A virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, and he would be named Emmanuel, a Hebrew word which means God is with us or God with us. For the original listeners of this, Ahaz and his people, this promise would have been reassuring. It was a promise that deliverance was was not far off. It was right around the corner. By the time an appointed woman gave birth to a child, and before this child came to maturity, that is, knew the difference between wrong and right, their enemies would be destroyed. Now, this text gets difficult at this point because it's not entirely clear who this virgin is, nor are we specifically told the identity of the child, at least not in this passage. Some have suggested that chapter 8 of Isaiah, verses 3 and 4, indicates that the sign was fulfilled in Isaiah's wife and son. I want you to look at those verses with me and see this. Isaiah 8, verse 3. This is Isaiah talking here. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Notice how similar this sounds to Isaiah 7. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Very similar wording. It's possible that Isaiah's son, Mahershalal Hashbaz, is a mouthful here, he was the fulfillment of this sign. And by the time that he was born and before he even learned to speak, Syria and Israel were overthrown, and Judah was rescued from their attack. Whatever the specific fulfillment was, whether it was this text or referred to something else that they knew about, Ahaz and the people of Judah could be confident that God was going to rescue them. And the child named Emmanuel, God with us, assured them that God was near to them, that he was intimately involved in their lives. In the midst of their problem, 
the threat of foreign invasion, God delivered a promise, the sign of his presence, and an assurance that they would be delivered. But what about us? Do we have this same assurance from God in the midst of the various problems in our lives? Thankfully, God in his supernatural wisdom orchestrated the events of Isaiah 7 in such a way that they not only had significance to Ahaz and the people of Judah, but they also have importance to us as well. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1. We'll spend the rest of our time here as we head for the runway. Although the the details of Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1 are different, the contexts are very similar. And I want you to notice this. I want you to see what Matthew is doing by, by, by picking up on the language of Isaiah 7. Listen to this. In Isaiah's day, foreign armies threaten God's people. In Matthew's day, God's people are again threatened by a foreign army, Rome, who could squash them at any time. In Isaiah's day, there was a weak king named Ahaz reigning on the throne. And in Matthew's day, there also was a weak king named Herod reigning in the land. And to make matters worse, this man was not even a Jew. He was a Gentile, a usurper. In Isaiah's day, many were wondering if God had abandoned them. And in Matthew's day, there were many wondering whether God was involved in their lives. Between the the last word of the Old Testament and the first word of the New Testament, there's a period of 400 years. And scholars have identified this time as the 400 silent years. It's a time when the lights went out, prophetically speaking. There was no word from God. There were no prophets. There were no divine messengers. By the first century, it would have been easy to wonder whether God had abandoned you. In Isaiah 7, there's a divine messenger sent to proclaim a word of deliverance to God's people. And in Matthew chapter 1, there's a divine messenger, an angel, sent to a man named Joseph the promise of God's coming salvation. In Isaiah's day, God tells Ahaz, do not fear. And in Matthew's day, an angel tells Joseph, do not fear. In Isaiah's day, there was a sign of a virgin who would conceive a child. And in Matthew's day, there was also a virgin, Mary, who would miraculously conceive of a child by means of the Holy Spirit. Finally, in Isaiah's day, there was a child who assured God's people of his deliverance, named Emmanuel. And in Matthew's day, 
There was a child who would be born who came to bring God's people salvation. But he would not just be named Emmanuel. He would be Emmanuel. God with us. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Several lessons emerge from the truth that God is with us, and I close with just a few. First, God is fundamentally with us in Christ to give us salvation and the hope of eternal life. There's no doubt that after the fall of man into sin, there was a definite distance that resulted between God and man. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says that our sins have separated us from God. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short or become separated from God's glory. Yet despite this distance... God in his great mercy and grace promised Adam and Eve and all who came from them that one day he would reverse the curse and bring human beings and God back together again. A descendant of Eve would come and undo the work of the evil one and bring God's salvation to his people. Jesus Christ the second member of the Godhead, came to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death for his people and rise again to life so that all who trust him would be saved from their sin and have the hope of forever being with God. Is that true of you this morning? Have you been reconciled with God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you this day to put your trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and for the hope of eternal life. Second, God and Jesus Christ is with us by his Holy Spirit to always be present in our lives for comfort, guidance, and strength. Matthew ends his gospel the same way that he begins it, with the promise of Emmanuel. You ever notice this? The Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus declares, and behold, I am what? With you, always, 
even to the end of the age. This is a promise that you and I are encouraged to cling to this morning. Whatever problems you face in your life, you can be confident that God is near to you and with you, come what may. As Emmanuel, Jesus is with you by his spirit when you receive discouraging news from your doctor concerning that illness or diagnosis. As Emmanuel, God is with you as you resist that temptation or fight that sin. And he's given you his spirit's power to overcome sin and temptation. As Emmanuel, Jesus is with you as you work through that difficult situation at school. He's with you, young people, as you think about your future, what you decide to do after high school, as you contemplate what major to pursue in college or what career path to take. As Emmanuel, Jesus is with you as you pay that bill, as you make that appointment, as you make that phone call. You do not face any situation or circumstance in your life alone. In the truest sense, you are never lonely as a believer because God in Christ is with you by his Holy Spirit. To paraphrase the Apostle Paul, if God is with you, then who or what can be against you? Finally, God and Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, is with us as we gather each week to worship and as we scatter each week to make disciples. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, in the context of talking about church discipline, Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, what? With them. As the church gathers in an official capacity, even as we do this morning, God is with us. And he not only is with us by the power of his word and Holy Spirit, but he often even uses the presence of other believers to let us know that he is near. Whatever problems, beloved, you face in your life that tempt you to think that God is distant, be encouraged by the promise of Emmanuel that he is near you. Let me conclude with these words from one of my favorite preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. God is with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. The black-winged dragon of the pit quails before it. Let him come to you suddenly, and do you but whisper that word, God with us. Back he falls, confounded and confused. God with us is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayer? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us 
is the sufferer's comfort, the balm of his woe, the alleviation of his misery, the sleep which God gives to his beloved, their rest after exertion and toil. God with us is eternity's sonnet, heaven's hallelujah, the shout of the glorified, the song of the redeemed, the chorus of angels, the everlasting oratio of the great orchestra of the sky. Those who are serving the Lord's Supper this morning can come forward. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, thank you that you are with us in Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. But thank you that you are with us by your Holy Spirit to encourage us and comfort us. Please give us faith to trust in your promise of God with us. In the name of Jesus, our Emmanuel, all God's people said. Amen. As we, sorry. As we prepare to take communion, we are celebrating the God who humiliated himself to be with us. In Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That, that monthly as we celebrate communion, we celebrate the God who came, who lived among us, who experienced everything that we experience, and who loved us so much he died in our place. And so it's more than just eating a little piece of bread and drinking a little juice. It is proclaiming that Emmanuel came and died to save us. And because communion proclaims such an important truth, there are things that we need to remember about communion. Number one is that this is a practice for God's people. And so we welcome you, if you are a believer in Jesus, to participate with us as a church. But we ask that if you are not a believer in Jesus, we ask that you refrain uh, from taking communion. And I'd love to talk with you later about how to become a believer in Jesus, if that's where you are today. The second step for those of us who are believers, because it is such an important message that communion is proclaiming, such an important truth that, that we need to examine ourselves. Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11 says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So as we celebrate communion, we celebrate our Savior, our Emmanuel, who did come to save his people from their sins. As is our practice, we will pass out both elements. Uh, Please hold on to them so that we may take them together as a congregation.